Hey everybody, welcome. I'm Dave Tish. If we haven't met, I'm a teaching pastor at Westgate Church right down the road, and I'm here for week three of our Abraham series. I was here a couple weeks ago. Last time I had M&Ms. I don't have M&Ms now. Look, you're not going to get more M&Ms until you finish your broccoli. Your mother and I are serious about this, okay? So um, I also like to apologize. I got some, some texts and some emails. I made a joke about Fresno last time I was here. Got some angry texts, angry emails, and I'd like to apologize formally not because of the joke. The joke stands. I'm just apologizing because you're from Fresno. I'm so sorry. The point is, um, as we go into this Abraham series, we're examining what it means to love God. The whole point of the story of Abraham is to teach us as people what it means to love God. Early on in the story in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people of Israel, the highest commandment is to love God with all their heart and their soul and their strength. This is called the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy. And later on, Jesus actually ratifies the Shema and actually says it in both Matthew and Mark and in Luke. He ratifies it. He says the highest commandment, the the number one priority for humans is to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love their neighbor as themselves. That this this is the most important thing. So what does it mean to love God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength? Now, instead of trying to delineate each one of those, like, how is my heart different than my soul? Instead, I think what Jesus in the Bible is trying to tell us is we should love God with everything that we have. But what does that mean? This is a hard, difficult thing. We talked about how there's four main lessons from the life of Abraham, and we're going to march through those four main lessons for the next couple of weeks. Uh, The first lesson is be loyal to God even if it costs you, even in the land of Baal. The second is to trust God even if it doesn't make sense. The third is to seek justice, to love what's right, to do what's right, and to help set things right. And then lastly, to expect God to be good, even when life falls apart. We're going to march through four big moments in Abraham's life in those four lessons. But today we're just going to focus on the first one, which is the first lesson, to be loyal to God, be committed to God, even if it costs you. So last week we talked about how this idea of what it means to love God is actually not that different than what it means to love any other human person, to be in a relationship with anybody. There's always this kind of dance, this kind of, hey, you remember when you're first dating your wife or you first met that girl or that guy and you're there and you're sitting there and you're like, hey, what's, hey, 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 oh, hey, what is there, what, you know, somebody makes kind of a move. And there's an expression of commitment and interest and then loyalty and then it's reciprocated and then you go back and forth and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And we looked last week that Abraham learns early on in the story of Genesis that God moves first. That God initiates this human, this human relationship with humanity. He, that's what he does. He, re, he initiates this relationship with humanity. And, and this would have violated all of Abraham's deeply held theological beliefs. We talked about how he grew up in Mesopotamia and how there was these things called ziggurats, which all the ancient Mesopotamian cities had. They were centered, the whole city civic life was centered around these ziggurats, these giant brick staircases, staircases to heaven, cue Led Zeppelin. And they believed if you could climb up there, if you worked hard enough and built a big enough ziggurat, that perhaps the gods would show you some favor. Perhaps they'd even come down. But in general, what Abraham's story shows us in Genesis 11 and then in Genesis 12 is that God's the one who moves first. He comes down first. And now we're going to continue on in the story because it gets even more interesting. Abraham learns that God moves first, which is a mind-blowing proposition. God 
moves first. And then I'm going to look at four movements that happen right after this in the story. Four moments that Abraham marches through. And in this story, you're going to see something shifting, something changing in the heart of Abraham. Something is going on inside him. And let's see if we can find out. And you're going to see this repetition in this story that shows this. See if you can see what it is. You're going to see a repetition. So let's start with the first moment. It's found in Genesis 12. It's that moment when God shows up and makes himself known to Abraham, who's living in a foreign land, worshiping foreign gods. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram, he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now this is the first moment. Abraham is living in a foreign land in Mesopotamia with foreign lunar gods that were worshipped by the Chaldeans. That's what the ziggurats are for, to worship the lunar gods. He leaves that land, and he enters into the land of Canaan. Now, here's what happens. Whenever you were an ancient person and you entered into a foreign land, what you would do is you would make an altar to that foreign god because you want that foreign god's favor. And so what we see in the text is as Abram left that one region and came to this new region, he made an altar to Baal, the local god of the Canaanites. Oh, wait, no, that's not what the text says at all. He does not make an altar to Baal. You would expect that. That's what everyone would have done. When you go to a foreign land, you make an altar to the foreign gods. Even today, if you go to certain parts of the world, like a couple years ago, my mother-in-law actually tried to hike Mount Everest, not all the way up to the top, but part of it. And as you get up there, there's these temples and you make offerings to the Tibetan god of, of, the, of Mount Everest. And you offer little cakes and little drinks and you put up a prayer flag because you don't want that Mount Everest goddess to be mad at you because you'll die on the mountain. This is the same kind of idea. You make an altar to a foreign god, but that's not what Abraham does. He makes an altar to Yahweh, this creator god who appeared to him. In the land of Baal, Abraham makes an altar to Yahweh. Now, I know what you're thinking. You might be thinking, well, that's strange. That's, we don't make altars in our day and age. We don't build monuments to gods. Are you sure? Drive around. What are the biggest buildings in our city? What are they monuments to? I would say that you can say that we make monuments to football where people stream once every single week for adulation of a team. Some of you aren't even in church right now. You're watching this online because you want to catch the Niners game. No shame. I'm just saying. The point is we build altars today. I had a friend who was a missionary in Indonesia a couple years back. Remember, there was a tsunami, devastated lots of stuff. And so she served in Indonesia. 
Um, and once she was there, she, she was there for several years rebuilding schools and doing some work there. And she came back and she's like, man, I can't take the idolatry in the United States. And I was like, why? What's, what are you talking about? She's like, there are restaurants and idols to your stomach on every single corner. And I was like, that's, yeah, it's delicious. Um, I was convicted. Um, the point is, we have idols too. And the Bay Area has its own unique idols. And what Abraham shows us is it's possible to be a person who, even in the land of foreign gods, to refuse to make an altar to those gods, and instead he makes an altar to this Yahweh, the creator God. Then, moment two, it keeps going. The story keeps going. From there, Abraham, that's he, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Now, so Abram goes from Mesopotamia to this place. Then he kind of finds a perfect place and he settles there. And he says, this is where my camp will be. And then he builds an altar. And there's this phrase, he called on the name of the Lord. This phrase is used throughout the Old Testament to, de to designate two things. One is worship. And the second is a call for help. Now, in this context, it appears as though it's just worship. He's just calling out and saying, you are my creator God. You are Yahweh. Again, in the land of Baal, Abraham is building an altar to Yahweh and calling on Yahweh's name, not Baal's. But then the story keeps going. Moment three. Right before we get into this, here's what happens. God has promised to Abraham that he's going to have a child and he's going to have a land. And so he's like, and it's, it's very Mufasa, you know, looking at everything the light touches will be yours. It's this beautiful moment. And then a famine hits and Abraham gets scared. So he leaves his land almost immediately. This is like three verses later. And then he goes to Egypt where there's the Nile because that's food security. You always go where the water is because then the, the crops won't die because there's a famine. And then he realizes, wait a second, my wife, Sarah, is really pretty. And the Pharaoh is just going to take her. So he says to her, why don't you just pretend like you're my sister? And then she's like, uh, and then she does it. And then Pharaoh takes her as one of his wives. Okay, so God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you a child. And in three verses, he leaves his land and gives away his wife from whom he will get the child. It's like Jerry Maguire. God's like, help me help you, right? It's just... But God cleans up the mess. Isn't that such good news? You ever made a mess of your life through no one else's fault except your own? God can clean up our messes and get us back on track. And that's what he does willingly and graciously to Abraham. He's in Egypt and this is what happens. God sends afflictions. Here's what we pick up in moment three. It says in Genesis 12, 17 to 20, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had and lot with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. From the Negev, he went 
from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and when he had first built the altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. So a couple of things here. First of all, if you're, you got to remember who's writing this and to whom. Moses is writing this to the to the Hebrew people who had just been enslaved by Egypt. So when they hear that the Lord sent afflictions and then the Pharaoh said, get out of my land. Do you, do you see what's going on there? This is a hyperlink to something that would happen later in the story in Exodus, but to the readers had already happened. It's an internal double hyperlink. It's brilliant. But what's also interesting is what happens to Abraham. He knows that something is off, that something is wrong. So he goes back to where he built that altar. He goes back to where God was. Because when life gets messy, and ultimately when life gets incredibly confusing, it's always good to go back to where you know God was. Go back to where you know God was, and then he calls on the name of the Lord at the altar where the Lord had first appeared to him. Where he, not first appeared to him, where, the, where, where, where God had appeared to him. And he calls on the name of the Lord. He worships again. And then, of course, the fourth moment as we move into this, there's a conflict. Abraham and Lot's flocks grow. And there's a conflict. There's not enough land. There's not enough resources, not enough water. And so Lot, in a, a move of open handedness, goes up on a mountain with Lot and says, hey, just pick. Just pick what, what, what area you want. And Lot looks to the green, lush area and says, I want that leaving Abraham with the rest. And of course, Abraham says, go, and Lot goes. That later would turn out to be the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not such a great idea. Lot actually turns out to be able to be a person who does not make good decisions. But anyway, the point is, um, Abraham is very open-handed on this. And this is when we have this moment. Right after that, God appears to Abraham again. And this is moment four. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and south to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, now, you're starting to see the pattern here. Abraham is an altar-building machine. This is what he does. He's building altars all the time, and they're never to Baal. They're never to foreign gods. They're always to Yahweh, the creator God, and he's often calling on the name of the Lord. Here's a chart, a little thing. He's in Haran. God speaks to him. He goes to Shechem, builds the first altar. God makes a promise. Then he goes to Bethel, and he builds another altar. Then he goes to Egypt. Then he comes back from Egypt. He calls on the name of the Lord, and then he goes to Hebron um, for the third time, and he builds a third altar. And God speaks to him again. Now, here's what's going on here. These altars, they signify an internal change that is happening in the heart of Abraham. He is pledging his devotion to this Yahweh, the creator God, who has already moved and pledged his devotion to him, who's already moved and said, I will bless you, who's already shown up to him and rescued him from pagan idol worship, who's already showed up to him in a foreign land and says, I want to do something extraordinary through you and through your lineage. He's responding, he's shifting, he's changing his commitment. 
His loyalty, his allegiance is not to Baal or any other lunar god of Chaldea. It's to Yahweh, the creator God. Something is going on inside the heart of Abraham, and he's trying to express his devotion to this God. And this God keeps showing up. And this is our lesson. Loving God means being loyal, even if it costs you, even if it's dangerous, even in the land of Baal. This is what's going on. And this is the lesson for us. This is part of what it means. And, and if you think about it, being loyal and committed to God is really not something that Abraham's doing. He's just responding to a God that's already been loyal and committed to him. But then the story gets a little bit more complex because sometimes it's difficult to be loyal and committed to God. Sometimes it's difficult. So God has promised a son to Abraham, but it's been a few years and Abraham is not getting any younger, and his wife is not getting any younger. And he wonders, is, is this, what's going on? Did you make a promise and forget? Did, are you trustworthy? Like, I don't know you. Remember, this is super early in the story of the Bible. This is like very early, and if you look at a Bible, and you open it up, this is like on page 30. This is not very far into the story. And so Abraham has a question, like, what's going on with God? And so in Genesis 15, he makes a request of God. He basically says, how do I know? How do I know that you're who you say you are? I, I don't help me here a little bit. And he approaches God very respectfully, but he approaches them. Let's go to Genesis 15. And this is um, the next part of the story. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, a couple things real quick before we go on. Look how Abram addresses God. He calls him sovereign Lord. He basically says, look, I know you're all powerful. There's a respect in the way that Abraham approaches Yahweh, but he approaches him. He asks a question, and then it goes, and he says, how, I don't understand how this is going to be. How am I going to have a kid? How will this happen? By the way, later on in the story of the Bible, another person will say, you told me I'm going to have a child, but how's that going to happen? That was a young teenager named Mary, but we're not there in the story yet. But it, it's an interesting link. So here's what happens. Then the word of the Lord came to Abraham. This man, he's talking about Eliezer, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then God took Abraham outside and said, look, up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so your offspring shall be. And Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. And God also said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And this is the question. This is the question. Now, there's a couple of things I just want to point out. There was a commentary I read that it was a Jewish scholar who wrote something fascinating, and it stuck with me. I'm just going to share it with you now. No cost. It's free. It's just extra. The scholar said, I find it astonishing that God made a promise specific to Abraham about his offspring, 
based upon the sand, the dust, and the stars. So that no matter if Abraham looked down or if he looked up, there would be a reminder of God's promise. And also, whether he looked down during the day or at night, there was a constant reminder of God's promise. And Abraham basically has this promise in front of him that God's reminding him. But then he says, how do I know? How can I know? Sovereign Lord, once again, real respect. He understands his place, the hierarchy. But he's also saying, listen, I got to know. How am I going to know? This, this doesn't make any sense to me. Are, are you trustworthy? Like, we don't have that long of a relationship. I don't really know what you're like. I've heard stories of other gods who are fickle, who lie to humans, who change their mind. Are you like that? Will you forget me? Will you forget your promise? Like, what's this like? And so the next part says this. So the Lord said to him, and this is to Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So now we have to pause because a lot of people are like, well, what? What's going on here? And in order to get into this, you and I, we need to understand something that the ancient listeners who first heard this story would have understood that we miss. And that is something about ancient Sumerian treaties ancient Sumerian treaties and contracts. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, I want to hear more. I want, I want multiple long-form Netflix documentaries about ancient Sumerian treaties, please. But in recent days, there's been a lot of archaeological evidence unearthing these contracts. And these contracts and these treaties were more important and more binding than even a Verizon contract. Let me try to explain to you what these contracts were like. Basically, there's two types of contracts in ancient Sumerian world. And again, we have these on stones, and archaeologists have unearthed them, and we can read and decipher them. And there's two types of contracts. The first is because in the ancient world, there weren't really empires yet. There weren't quite empires. And so these families and these people groups and these nomadic groups are all gathered in Mesopotamia, and they're there and there's no real natural boundaries, and so they make allegiances to each other. And sometimes these allegiances were between two groups that were equally powerful. They were both roughly the same power. They had roughly the same resources, and they said, let's come together and help each other. This would be like if Apple and Google came together. They're both powerful, and they were trying to defeat Disney, the all-powerful empire, or something. I don't know. So the idea is that these are two powerful, equally powerful entities. And these contracts, or these um, kind of treaties, were called parity treaties. They're parity. They have the similar equality. And there would be language in these contracts about, like, brotherhood or family. There'd be familiar terms. But there's another type of contract in the ancient world between two groups that had disparate power or unequal power, dramatically sometimes. There'd be somebody who's like a, sh a simple sheep herder going up against a very powerful family who controlled all the resources. And the, the, the weaker person would say, can I please have my sheep graze in your fields and drink from your stream? And in exchange, I'll give you 20% of my sheep. And the powerful person would say, yes, I agree to that. I won't kill you. And so that's, what, that's what's called a suzerain treaty, sometimes called a lord treaty. It's a lord vassal or a master servant kind of treaty. There's a massive power differential. 
and how they would do these treaties. That's the type of treaties and how they would ratify these treaties or sign these treaties. This is before handwriting and ink and digital thumbprints. What they would do to sign these treaties is they would have two altars and they would take an animal and they would cut it in half and put one half on this side and the other half on this side and they would walk the aisle. You've heard that expression, walk the aisle. Some of you got married. Some of you walked the aisle. Hopefully it was less bloody. But the point is, you walked the aisle, you're there, and then that's how you sign the contract. Now, with a parity treaty with two equally powerful people, both parties would walk through. In a suzerain treaty, when there's a powerful and a not very powerful, it was the weak one who walked through who pledged their allegiance because the powerful person doesn't have anything to prove. By the way, I once tried to illustrate this idea of ancient Sumerian treaties with a My Little Pony. I actually saw it a My Little Pony in half, and there was stuffing everywhere. Parents were gasping, covering the eyes of their children. Children were crying and weeping. It did not go well, but it was very memorable. So this is what's going on in the story. Abraham and God are making a treaty. So quick question for you. Is this a parody treaty between two equal parties or is this a suzerain treaty between a powerful entity and a not very powerful entity? Exactly. It's a suzerain treaty because nobody is in equal with God. Nobody is equal with God. Not Tom Brady, not Tom Cruise, not even Oprah. There's a disparate power dynamic. So who should take the covenant walk? Abraham. Who's going to cut the animals in half and walk through and pledge if I break my oath to you, if I am not committed and loyal to you, may it be to me as happened to these animals. May I be torn in two. Who's going to take that walk? It's Abraham, right? He's the weaker party. He's the lesser party. He's going to pledge his allegiance to God. He's going to pledge his loyalty to God. He's going to pledge his commitment to God, his oath to God. That's how it should go. And if he breaks that oath, if he breaks that commitment, if he breaks that covenant, then the penalty of the covenant will be on him. May it be to me as it happened to these animals that were cut in half. I will be torn in half if I fail this covenant, this contract. But plot twist. We're talking M. Night Shyamalan kind of plot twist here. This is incredible. Look what the story tells us. As the sun was setting... Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Who goes on the covenant walk? God goes on the covenant walk. He is showing to Abraham Look, I'm all in. Even though I'm the more powerful party, I want you to know that if I don't keep my promise to you, may it be to me as it was these animals, I will be torn in two. If I don't keep my promise, I solemnly pledge to you, Abraham, my friend, that I will bring to pass what I have promised. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I am your God and I will not leave. This is incredible. There is not a story like this in any ancient literature anywhere. It's brand new. 
This is religiously and theologically radical. What kind of God pledges his allegiance to people? But there's something even more exceptional. The ceremony ends, and Abraham doesn't even have to take the covenant walk. He doesn't have to pledge his loyalty to God, which must have made Abraham's mind swim. Because the implications of that is, in Abraham, if you break the covenant, if you mess up, if you aren't loyal and committed, then I, God, will take the penalty of that as well. So God not only pledges his allegiance to Abraham, saying, I will be your God, but he also says, if you mess up this covenant, if you aren't faithful, I'll bear the cost and the penalty because that's how much you mean to me. God says, I'm the one who will pay if you mess up. I think about a moment in my own life, just to close with a final story, where this kind of idea, and I know this is a silly illustration, but it's how God got my attention about his incredible grace and goodness. When my son was about one and a half, he was very rambunctious. He was very aggressive, and he, he was very high, filled with high energy. And um, he's about one and a half, and we go on a family vacation with my wife's parents. And uh, we're there, and they had like a VRBO or an Airbnb, and so we rented it. And we go in. Before we go in, we have to make the place childproof, right? Because we can't have my son running around breaking anything. Now, the problem was the people that lived in this house that we had rented, they actually had a collection, a menagerie of glass figurines and animals. It, they were everywhere. This is a nightmare. We had to take pictures, and we had to move them and put them everywhere to make sure that my son couldn't get to them. And after about 20 minutes of hard work of all four adults there, my, ch- my son was sleeping, and we're all four adults are kind of running around making sure everything's safe. We looked around, and finally, everything was safe and child-proofed. My son woke up, and we kind of took him out of He was sleeping in his car seat. He got out. He wiped the sleep out of his eyes, and he ran down the hall into the, the den, and in the den, it was like a, a, like a study, and there was a three-in-one printer. It was a fax machine and a copy machine and a printer, and he went to the paper tray and just, just pulled down on it and just snapped it right in half. Just like within 45 seconds, it was as though God had sent him on a mission to break the three-in-one printer immediately. Like he woke up and was like, I must break it. I, the world's fate rests in my little toddler hands. Break it. There it is. And I'm like looking at it going, that was like 20 seconds. What just happened? And my father-in-law comes up and he's like, oh, what happened? And I'm like, it's broken. And my father-in-law says, well, what are we going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. And he looks at me and he goes, what are you going to do? And I'm like, don't look at me. I didn't break the thing. And he put his arm around my shoulder My father-in-law said to me, kids can be expensive. And it was in that moment I realized, of course, I have to pay. Of course I do. My son can't pay. It's a debt that's far greater than he can. He can't earn money. He's useless in the workforce. He's a toddler. But I'll pay. I'll pay. Because I'm his father. And any debt that he incurs... I'll pay because he cannot. 
I know that's a silly example, but in a very real way, that's what God does. Before we can earn, before we can prove, before we can show ourselves worthy, God shows up and he says, I'm in this, I'm committed, I'll pay. God says, I'll pay. And of course, this is a flash forward to a story much later in the Bible, but it's foreshadowing of Jesus who comes and says, I'll pay. And on the night he was betrayed, he sat with his friends and he broke some bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, I'll pay. And he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant, the new promise. You see that word, the promise that runs through my veins. It's going to be shed for you. I'll pay. Abraham is getting a picture of what God is really like. Why is Abraham loyal and committed to this God? Because this God not only shows up first, not only moves first, but this God says, I'm so committed, I'll pay, even if you can't. I'm in this for the long haul, no matter what. What an incredible God. And is it any wonder that Abraham spends the rest of his days? Now look, Abraham gets lots of things wrong. He's going to make lots of mistakes. But on this matter, he does not make any mistakes. He never builds an altar to any other God. On this matter, he gets it 100% right. Maybe that's all it takes. In our lives, we're going to make lots of mistakes. We're going to mess up. But if we can get this thing right, if we can say, look, I know how loyal you are. And I'll be loyal to you, God. If we can get that one right, I think God can clean up the rest. May we be a people who are loyal and committed to God. Above all else, even if it costs us, even in a land full of foreign idols, just like Abraham. Not because we're so great, but because God's so great. Let's pray. Father, Spirit, Jesus, thank you for this story found in Genesis about Abraham. May we be like Abraham. Would you help show us the goodness of you, Father? Would you remind us where we would be had you not come and intersected our lives? Would you remind us where we would be if you had not come and gotten us? And may we always be thoughtful of how much you paid and what that shows about your great love for us. And may we, in turn, be moved to devotion, not because we're so great, but because you are. Not because we have so much love and fidelity and commitment, but because you do. But would you help us move toward commitment because you deserve it, because you are so good. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.